This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. This is the Cornerstone U identified by God, sexuality, and gender. And so I think that the, the last two classes, Mike kind of laid the groundwork for us, and then Kent continued to lay the groundwork a little bit, looked at the life of Jesus and how we can learn from him um, with regards to the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Um, what I want to do is kind of give a, um, a picture of um, what the Bible teaches both on marriage and sexuality. Um, kind of a, here's what we believe. Um, here, here's where we stand. But, but, but I also want to do it in a way to where um, give us the idea that when we do this, we don't feel wooden. We don't feel defensive. I think at times we as Christians feel like we always have to be on the defense. And, and, and I think at times it comes off the wrong way. And so I want to I kind of mesh those two together. So what does the Bible have to, to say about marriage and sexuality? But also, how can we do this in a way that we actually believe this is the biblical and better way? And so to the world, we have a better story as you would want to as you could say it that way and so we want to present this better story in a way that is winsome in a way that is gentle that is not defensive or self-righteous so let me pray for us and then we will dive in heavenly father we begin by prayer acknowledging our need for you acknowledging that you are the god of all things that you are our god it is you who made us we are the sheep of your pasture And so, Father, you've given us your word. You have not left us alone to figure these things out. And so I do pray that you would help us in these these few minutes that we have together, that you would help us, Father, to learn, that you would help us to understand, that you would um, give us a desire to live according to your will, give us a desire to to not be self-serving, but to to live a life of self-giving, of sacrifice, Um, and that we would do it with joy because of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as people, we love stories. We're captivated by stories. We're surrounded by stories. Um, On our news feeds, Facebook feeds, Instagrams, the advertisements we see, they're bringing us into a story, a narrative that is being communicated. And we learn stories from a very early age. My six- and four-year-old, know that whenever I would say once upon a time that a story is about to begin. And if I start a story, recently I did, and my, my, my daughter said, Dad, you've got to start it the right way. And I didn't start it with once upon a time. And so there, there's the story that we learn about even from a young age. And, and the same is true for where we are in our cultural moment. And, and, and I think that we're naive or we're being blind if we don't think that there's a story being presented to us. Um, and everything that we read and everything that, that we see and every click that we take, there is a narrative being communicated. And every movie that we watch and every show that is, is given, there is a story being told. And so we have to be um, aware of this. And it is quite incredible how media can portray a story, how they can pull you into a narrative, how they can, how they can portray and they can, can communicate truths and things that they believe, things that they want you to believe as a, cul- as, as a culture. They can bring you into that very subtly. 
and, and make you feel like that it is the right way. And, and so I think that this is where we are in our cultural moment. And, and it's especially true when it comes to marriage and sexuality. There you, just, you continue to see more and more of a shift from a traditional biblical view of marriage and sexuality in commercials um, and shows. I mean, it's just that's what they are being presented with. And so I think that's where we have to be able to discern these things. But then also, we, we don't want to just remain defensive. Um, but this is where we are. And it's amazing how, how fast that we've arrived here. I mean, they say that the, the sexual revolution began around the 1960s. Um, but then in these last few years with Obergefell, the decision to legitimize and legalize homosexual marriage, and just recently the Equality Act, if you don't know what that is, it's being presented. This bill and the provisions, they add categories of sexual orientation and gender identity to the list of protected classes in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And so this is, this is ramping up. This is becoming more and more important for us to understand and be mindful of. Um, because it's going to have effect on our lives. So how are we to respond to this? How, how would you respond to this? How do, you, how do we respond to this narrative? How do we respond to what's being presented to us? And, and I think where I would begin is 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth so i think this just whenever you read about these they're coming at us there's this narrative against us there's things that are being portrayed as as wrong we're going to be pursued now as as being uh, people who hate other people because we disagree with them so there's all these things there's this there's this combat, there's this fight that feels like it's, the tension is rising. How are we to respond as Christians? And what I would say is we respond gently. I say that we respond through prayer. I say that we respond by being what, what Paul writes to Timothy, that we would live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Does that come to your mind when you think about how do I, what's the story that I want to tell? What, what do I want to communicate to this world? And at times what we want to do is we want to get in and we want to fight. And we want to push back. And I think there is a time to give a defense for the hope that we have within us. But that doesn't mean that we do it in a combative way. No, we do it through prayer. We pray for all people. What that means is not as all types of people. So we not only pray for people who believe the same things we do, but we pray for those who are lost. We pray for those who are in homosexual relationships, who are struggling with gender identity, who are lost. We pray for them. That's what we do. That's how we respond as Christians. We pray. We ask God that, they, that He would open their eyes, just as He had opened our eyes. So that's where we begin, is through prayer, through thanksgiving, through living a godly and dignified life. We can't overlook this. Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin um, She wrote this. She said, If we are to be faithful in this cultural moment, we must be neither retreaters or attackers, neither needlessly defensive nor faithlessly aggressive. Instead, we must go on a gentle offensive. 
a gentle offensive. And so what, what I hope is that as you think about these things, it helps us to go on a gentle offensive with this. To not, not simply retreat and hide. We don't want to hide from these things, but we don't want to be attackers. We don't want to just throw, yell at people. We don't just want to call people names. What we want to do is we want to have, we want to have a gentleness like Jesus did. And then, but we also we want to go on the offensive because I, because I believe, and I know you believe, that we have a better story. We have a better story. We have a, God has given us a better design. And so that is my goal this morning. Is that's what, that's what I, how I want us to think. And I want us to be able to, to communicate that. And so what, I, what the Nashville statement, what that is, is that was released by the um, CBMW, Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And it was a response by them to our culture and even the church's um, beliefs of what it means to be a man and a woman, what marriage and sexuality is. And so what, what this statement does is that it gives you both things that they affirm and believe that Scripture teaches and denies. And so it's just a helpful, concise, clear document with Scripture that I would encourage you to read through, that I would encourage you to study, see what Scriptures they reference throughout that statement, and, and, and go to God's Word, and continue to build a biblical conviction for these things. Because that's what we want. We want the Bible. We want to have a conviction from God's Word. So please... Take those. Um, they have a whole website. You can go to cbmw.org, and you can access that. There's commentary. It's a very helpful website. But here's, here's what they say. Um, I believe this is one of their first um, statements. They say, We affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and His bride, the church. We deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. So that's just to give you an idea of what, how, they, how they say these things. So not only is it affirming, here's what we affirm, but here's what it denies. And this is what we affirm, that God has designed marriage, that it's covenantal, that it is sexual, it's procreative, it's a union between, a lifelong union between one man and one woman. It's meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and His bride. This is the better story. This is what we have to offer. So let's, let's look through this, consider this. Um, first point is going to be God's good design. So when we come to questions of sexuality and marriage and how we define them, we have to do it based on, the, is based on how we view the world. So, so how, how do we view the world? How do we view the world that we've been created in? Mike mentioned this, I believe, in the first class, but, but for many, there is a separation from what is objectively true based on scientific fact that can be, ze- can be seen and observed and tested in that which is subjective, that which is more private and personal. So that which is private and personal is more that of morality, questions of morality, questions of theology, what we believe about God. So since we can't see God and study God and know God in an observable way, then that's more of a subjective sense. What what is true for you may not be true for me. What you believe and how you live uh, may be different from me, but it's not hurting me, and so it's okay um, because your morality is, is based on what you believe, not what I believe. 
So this, what this does is that it puts man and woman at the center. What we observe to be true. What we deem to be true. What is true for you may not be true for me, but that's okay. But this isn't the Christian worldview, right? This isn't the Christian worldview. It's one... Um, the Christian worldview is one that does not come within, but comes from outside of us. It is one that is not conformed to what I think, but actually challenges what I believe. It's one that, that pushes my thinking, that, that challenges my thinking and behavior. It can make us feel uncomfortable. Because the things that we believe when we come to God's Word and what God has to say, it, it may be different. And most of the time it is different. And it's not only saying, here's the differences of belief, but in actuality, you're living totally wrong. In fact, you're dead in your sin. In fact, you need a Savior or you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's what the Bible has to say. That we were created by God and for God, yet we don't live for Him. So it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And when you, when you go... To God's word, what you see though, and what you find is that there is a created order. God hasn't just left things for us to figure out, but He's ordered things. He's create. There's a created order, and what I mean by that is something that when God at in the Garden of Eden, when everything, when He spoke creation to be, when everything came into existence, there was an order from that point. Something that was set and established, that even continues to today. So even though Genesis 3 happened, even though the fall happened, even though sin entered the world, there's still a created order. That, that God is, yes, sin has marred, and yes, sin has destroyed in many ways, but God is redeeming that. And one day He's going to renew it, and He's going to make all things new. But there's still, there is this order that exists. When God built the universe, it was like a building He did. So according to this blueprint, He calls it wisdom. And, 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 the, and wisdom is fundamentally underlying order according to which the universe is constructed. So, so when you speak of the architecture of a certain hardware or software, meaning the structure given to it, once you understand the architecture of it, you should be able to understand how it functions and behaves and works. So the world is God's creation, and that includes us. His fingerprints are all over us. And this world, the heavens, they declare His glory. We see the differences between male and female. We see the designly designed differences for specific purposes. As Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch in all of creation that Jesus does not cry, mine. So we are, we are, we are under the Lordship. We are under the divine rule of God. But the reality is, is that sin has entered the world. It is in our hearts. And, and what we do is that we see and know the truth, but we suppress it. We don't like it. It challenges us. It calls us to a different thing. And so what we want to do is we suppress it. We're not neutral with these things, but we're very much putting our own views of those or those of our culture and world in place of God's. So when we're born into this world, it's not like that we're just these neutral beings who we need to figure this thing out for ourselves. That we have this brain so that we can figure out how we want to live. No, there's, there, are, there are things going on that we have been created by God and we're imaging God. And so God's given us these things, these gifts, these bodies, these minds so that we could fulfill His purposes. But because of sin that has entered the world in our hearts, now we're not neutral anymore. 
We're not neutral. We're hostile. And yes, there is common grace. Yes, there is that people do good things, that people can build um, and create art and things that, that magnify, and I would say can glorify God. But in terms of living under God's good design and saying that I want to live for Him, that's just not the case. So when we return to the garden and we see God's good design and intention and we read the first recorded words of any human in the Bible, what we read is Adam. It's from Adam and it's poetry and it's of a man seeing a woman and they knew one another. And so what we see is that God provides a helper for this man. In Genesis 2, 24-25, He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his home and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And so Adam sees this helper, this woman, fashioned from his rib perfectly for him. And then he has these wonderful bones of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is who I've been looking for. And then they knew one another. And what that means is there wasn't just kind of this, hey, I know who you are. No, there was this intimate, experiential knowledge. There was this connectedness. There was this, this oneness that they experienced. And, and, and it was something that God had given them. And so we see that, that this is the first marriage. We see that this is the first picture of what God had intended for His people. And so this, this is the good beginning. When Jesus and Paul are asked about marriage, where do they take their listeners? They don't take them to Moses. They don't take them to, to the law. They don't take them to where they were talking about all these, here's how you do divorce, here's what marriage is, here's what this is. No, they take them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. They quote this scripture because what, what they're saying is that this is something, this is, this is the standard, this is the norm, this is the unchanging norm. That this was set in creation, this was set in God's good beginning. This is something that hasn't been changed. That a man and a woman should leave their mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they should become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. This is, this is the picture of marriage. This is what God has said is what marriage should be. The Bible sets sexual ethics before us as rooted and grounded in an unalterable moral ordering placed in creation by the Creator. The Bible sets sexual ethics before us as rooted and grounded in an unalterable moral ordering placed in creation by the Creator. The moment that we say marriage is this, we are going to immediately be pushed back by our culture. Because our culture and our world, and even those who would, in the church, some in the church would say, once you seek to define marriage, you've gone too far. They don't like the little word is. Because they want marriage to be defined in however they want to define it. The moment we say that marriage is between, is a covenant love, made before God between a man and a woman, lifelong, sex in the context of this union, then we are going too far. Because we are not, how, who are we to say what marriage is for them? Yet this is the world that we live in. And it's sad. I would say it's a maddening development. But more than maddening, it's saddening. Because what the culture, what it's done is that it has promised this newfound freedom Right? Come and experience this sexual freedom. I've been liberated, set free. 
Come and experience this freedom of pleasure. Experience your true self. Live out how you want to live. Experience what true love is and, and all these promises and what they find. And what is so saddening is that what they find is that these promises are not able to be fulfilled. It's still not what they're looking for. It still doesn't deliver on the promises. What, what this does is that when this happens, it cheapens sex. When we do this, it actually, they're thinking that this makes sex all the more better. But what it actually does is it cheapens it. And that's our second point, cheap sex. What do I mean by this? Here's, what, here's what's being written and encouraged in our culture. Here's just, here's just a few snap, snapshots. Sex can be purely physical and, and separate from love. Just purely physical. So don't need to love one another, don't need to really, you know, at times don't even really need to know one another. Just, we're, we're just here purely for physical pleasure. And that's okay. That's what sex is for. So here, here's one magazine. Warns teenage girls to keep your heart under wraps or boys may find you boring and clingy. Uh, one magazine, uh, Cosmo, advises women that the way to wow a man after sex is to ask for a ride home. To make it clear you have no intention or hopes for relationship. This is the advice. This is the things that are being written. These are the things that are being encouraged in our culture. That, that just, the goal here is that sex is purely physical. There's no need to get emotionally involved. It's just, pleasure is the most important thing. Pornography makes this even easier for men and women. To they, we are able to detach ourselves from one another and gratify our own desires. This distances men and women from one another. A laptop never says no. It makes no emotional demands. There is no commitment. It's purely pleasurable. This is what Jonathan Grant has to say. He says, The consumerist mindset has also been wheeled like a Trojan horse into the sanctuary of our personal relationships. Social media, online dating, and cyber pornography encourage us to be hyper-connected, but these interactions are almost invariably one-sided. We enter into them only so long as they satisfy our need. They offer connection without intimacy, commitment without risk, and companionship without mess. The online world all too often offers ties that preoccupy us rather than ones that bind us to each other. This is the world we live in. This is, this, is, this is the world that we live in, an online world that all too often offers ties that preoccupy us rather than ones that bind us to each other. We live in a world now where pleasure matters more than personhood. Cheap sex is when the end game for both parties is simply being able to experience pleasure. This is what the hookup culture, it's growing. People are hooking up more. They're swiping to connect on Tinder. There's all these things that, that, um, that are cheapening sex. In the past, sex was expensive. What I mean by that is, is sex meant a commitment through marriage. There was a promise to love and fidelity. Today, sex is given by both men and women without expecting much in return. It's cheap. It doesn't mean anything. I'm just here to receive. I'm just here to give and go. I'm not, I don't care about you. 
I don't, I, got, I, don't, I don't have anything to say to you. I care about me. There's only private commitments. There is no public commit, commitments. There is no ceremony. There is no declaration that I'm going to stand and love this man or woman for my life. It's based on purely subjective feelings and circumstances. If I went out of this relationship, then I'm going to go because I came into this relationship just about me. I don't care if there's children involved. This, is, this has been purely about me. I'll send child support or I'll do what I need to do, but I'm going to move on. It's saddening, but we, this, the movies don't portray this, do they? We don't, we don't read about these hard realities. We don't, we don't read about these, these broken relationships. We don't read about these hurting people. This is where I, I just I agree with when Ray Ortland was here. What he said, he said that there's going to come a time where this is going to end. This moment that we're, is going to end. And there's going to be broken people. There's going to be hurting people in this world. And what they're going to do is they're going to come. What, what I hope is that they're going to come into our doors. And, and, and what we want to do is we don't want to say, well, we told you so. That's not neat. That, that is not our response. What we say is that, hey, you are welcome here. We welcome you. And what we have to offer you is Jesus Christ. What we have to offer you, let me tell you what you were created for. Let me, let me tell you not just another story. Let me tell you a better story. Let, let me tell you about, here, here's who God is. And here is why He's created you. Here, let me tell you what really, what sex is about. Let me tell you, let me tell you what commitment is. Let me tell you what sacrifice is. You want to you know that someone sacrificially loved you? Do you want to see what sacrificial love is? Let, let me take you to a place called Calvary. Let me take you to a place where, where someone was willing to, to endure the pain and suffering and separation for sinners. That's where we want to take them. So point three, a better story. So where would you begin this story? Where would you begin? If someone came to you, and they wanted to talk, where would you begin? Where would you begin? You don't have to answer. Just think about that. Where would you begin? How would you start? How would you start? I think it's an important question to ask. Where would you begin? Where, where, would you, where do you think is the most important thing when, when we begin to talk about kind of this, this vision? I think we have to pull people away from this idea that sex is the end-all, be-all of life. We are sexual beings, but that does, not mean to f- that, that does not mean to fulfill your true humanity is to have sex. I mean, if that's the case, then, I mean, Jesus never had sex. John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah. These men, did they miss out on life? Were they not able to, to fully enjoy the pleasures of life because they, they weren't able to enjoy sex? No. No, what we want to offer people is what Jesus offers. We, what we want to encourage people with is that actually what you need to do to really understand and enjoy um, what marriage and sex and all these, all these things have to offer is that you've got to lose your life. Right now, you're at the center of your life. Right now, you want to live life for you. And what God, what we have to do before that is that, that you have to get off the throne and we have to put God on the throne. 
as Christians, what we want to say is we want to learn that the glory and honor of God is far more important than your personal satisfaction and the fulfillment of your longings and desires. Learn to center your life on His glory and purposes so that nothing so fills your heart with joy as seeing His purposes fulfilled. Then you have the deepest personal satisfaction and joy in the world as you rejoice in the glory of God. And so this is the most radical decentering of human beings imaginable. But we must do this if we are able to make sense of sex. Because sex, what we want to do with sex is we want to make it all about us. That's what we want. That's the temptation. That's the temptation. But, but whenever God is on the throne and whenever we, we're living for Him and what we're asking and what we're saying is, okay, what is the purpose of sex? Why did God give us sex? Why do we have marriage? Why are these things here? And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's more than us. It's bigger than us. It portrays and glorifies things more than us and our needs and our fulfillment. Do those things matter? Yes, they do. But it's not the end-all, be-all. For those, of, for those of you who are single in the room, what, how you, what you do is you show the sufficiency of the gospel by remaining pure. By saying that, that I'm not going to give in to how this culture says that we should live sexually. But I'm going to be, believe in God's good created order. And I'm going to use my time and my place in this world not um, for selfish desires, but to give of myself. To serve. To use my gifts. These aren't bad... Like, to, um, to show that, that God's good design is enough. That yes, do I desire these things? Yes, I have good desires, but I'm not defined by them. Just like you shouldn't be defined by your marriage, I'm not defined by my singleness. It's not what I'm living for. I'm living for Jesus. I'm living for something bigger than just me. I'm living for Him. And, and for those who are married, what this means is that you stay committed to your spouse. There's a commitment, there is a love, there is this mutual self-giving in marriage based on the fact that you don't live for yourself anymore. But you live for God and you live for others. In marriage, in 1 Corinthians 7, what we see is this, this mutual giving of oneself to your spouse. That your body belongs to your spouse now and you don't withhold yourself in intimacy anymore. There's this mutual self-giving. My body is not my own and so I, have, so I want to give him myself sexually to my husband and, and the husband wants to give of himself. There's this mutual serving one another. And what's incredible is that this is radical. For, for Paul is empowering women in this moment. Women did not have a voice really or a say in any type of relationship during this time. But what Paul is saying is that as a wife, you, and as a husband, you, there's this mutual self-giving of one another. That, that there is this, that the women, the wife has a voice. She has a say in this thing. She's not just a doormat for her husband's desires. So we, what, what we want to do is we don't want to present that God has, is just some arbitrary being. Right? Like, we don't want to say just that one day God woke up and decided, okay, here's how, here's how things are going to be. I'm going to make it this way. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll take this. Design for this. I'll say marriage is this. I'll, I, no, God's not arbitrary at all. 
what we want to say is, is that in the midst of all this, what we want to say is that God, He, His commands, we want to present to people not just God's commands, but we also want to present to them His character. And, and primarily that His goodness is connected to His commands. His goodness is connected to His design. So people don't just want to know what they have to do, but why. Why is it good to get married and have sex when everything else in the world is saying, have sex with whomever you want, feel good, be free. And I think this is where people like Rosaria Butterfield, Jackie Hill Perry, Sam Alberry, these, these voices are helpful because what they're coming and they're saying is that, that I live the way that I live because I believe that God is good. Not, not just because the Bible tells me to live a certain way, but because God is good. It's His goodness. It's His... It's his, it's his love for me. It's, it's, his commands are connected to His goodness. So He has His best intentions for me and how I'm going to be, how I'm living now. Do I still struggle? Yes, but I want to study and know that God is good. That he is, that he is for my good. That He is committed to my good. That He's committed to my good more than I am. And His goodness, it's not only for Christians, but it's for the world. And this is where the, it's just there's so much dam- damage being done in our society, not only when our politicians are encouraging and legisla- legislating a redefinition of marriage, but then the church is putting its stamp of approval. Rosaria Butterfield, she said that it's like hanging a millstone on people's necks. Just going ahead and saying, here you go. Stamp of approval. That's good. The Bible says it's clearly on, but here you go. What God condemns, we'll say is okay. Just like hanging, we're hanging a millstone on people's neck. We're turning a blind eye to what is obviously wrong. What we see in the beauty of marriage and sex is not simply the meeting of my needs or wants, but an opportunity in the context of a covenantal relationship to serve God and His world. You see, in the Garden of Eden where all this began, Eve was a helper fit for Adam, but this was not just a purely sexual thing, right? It's not like they just stayed there and enjoyed sex th- their whole lives. It's not like that's why they were created, is just to be sexual. No. Yes, they enjoyed um, intimacy, but it was for a purpose. It was for a reason. The garden needed to be tilled. Things needed to be planted. Work needed to be done. Children were going to be birthed. The earth was going to be filled. There was purposes. There was relationships. There were, there were purposes bigger than their marriage and sexual union that were being that were happening in that context. We have to remember that. We have to see that. Marriage is a is a wonderful gift from God. Sex is a wonderful gift from God, but but we but the goodness of it is that it's in his and God's good design. It's under what he has said this is what it is. And so whenever we submit to his, to his design, when we say and affirm that, that marriage was between a man and a woman, lifelong, when, 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 when two people are married, they're married not just before a pastor and a group of witnesses, they're married before God. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So, so it's, it's a covenant made before God. It's not a private commitment, it's a public commitment. And so it's a, it's, an, it's a commitment where you're held accountable. It's a commitment where, where people are watching and helping and involved, and you want that. It's, it's a commitment to where the, the intimacy and, and the relationship is not purely sexual, but there's also a friendship. 
there's an actual care for one another. There's an actual pursuit of one another. You're not, you're not just there to meet your felt needs, your physical needs. It's bigger than that. Those things are important. I'm not minimizing those things. But at times, if, if, we, don't, if we don't know where we're going, if we don't know what, this, what, what we're committing to, if we don't know what this is all about, then how are we going to understand those smaller things if we don't understand the bigger purposes that God has for us in those relationships? Those are the things we have to, to think about and consider. And the, the Bible has much to say about it. And I would say the, the Bible is not silent on the topic of sex. People think that as Christians, that you think about the Puritans and that, you're kind of, and, and that we're kind of like, oh, no, don't talk about sex. It's kind of weird. We don't really talk about it. It's awkward. It's kind of, no. You, it's just not true. There's a whole book, the Song of Solomon, that is committed, that is written on this beautiful marriage relationship. There are passages where encouraging the marriage relationship. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Lovely dear, graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. So there's just this commitment, this pursuit, this love for one another that the Bible portrays. And yet that's not heard about. And at times what the problem is is that, is, is that the church doesn't look that much different than the world. What, what, what we see is just really not that big of a difference. And I think that's where we have to check our, pull the log out of our own eye before we pull the speck out of someone else's. We have to ask those hard things. We have to ask hard questions. We have to look and consider, what am I living for? Whether I'm married or not, what am I living for? Whose glory, whose pleasure, whose delight? What, am I, what, are the, what are the truths that have come into my life that are directing my path, that are directing what I click and what I don't click, what I search for, the, the relationships that I foster and pursue and, and the attention that I garner and just all the, the friendships that I have or the friendships that I don't have or the questions that I have the desires that I have. There are all these questions. And I think at times it's good to ask, we need to ask those questions. And we need to go to God's Word with these questions. And we need to ask trusted friends those questions. And we need to, that's why God's given us the church. That's why God's given us pastors, teachers, fellow members. Um, because it's an expression of His provision and care for His people. He hasn't left us alone to figure these things out. And, and, and what's amazing is, that, is that, there, that God has decided to portray the marriage relationship. He's portrayed as the bride, His church, and Christ. And so there's just this relationship. And in, there's, on the last day, there will be a wedding day. Wedding, there won't be marriage in heaven, but there will be a wedding day. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. So listen to this. Above, uh, but above these stories, the Bible tells us a bigger story. It is the story of a marriage that includes within itself the whole history and future of the human race. It is the story of God the lover, the bridegroom, the husband, and his people, his beloved, his bride, and in the end, his wife. It is the story that John the Baptist had in mind when he spoke of Jesus as the bridegroom in John 3, and, and the story that Jesus himself accepted when he spoke of himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9. It is the story Paul referred to when he spoke of the church in Corinth being engaged to Jesus Christ like a pure virgin. 
It is the story that John speaks of in the visionary imagery of Revelation 19 and 21. The metaphors are mixed and the language is vivid and suggestive. We cannot read it literally. It would not be possible to make a film. At the climax of human history, John hears the announcements. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, is to be married at last. His bride is His people every believer of all time, corporately to be joined to Him forever in a union of unmixed delight and intimacy. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. That's where all this is leading. Our message is one of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which comes to all of us as moral failures and begins with washing and forgiveness rather than moral exhortation. And so in all this, what we do is we go to Jesus And He washes us and He cleans us and He says that I'm committed to you. I'm going to conform you to my image and then one day, at the end of all these things, you're going to be glorified and it's going to be a great wedding day. And, And throughout eternity, it's going to be a deep, intimate relationship that will never be broken. That will never end. And and that's where all this is going. That's what that's, that's where we're all going. That's what we're all about. And so we have to, to understand that this is God's good design. This is His created order. This is what He has for us. And so as we, as we think about these things, that's what we want to go to. That's what we want to think about. That's what we want to consider. That's the story that we have to offer to people. And what a wonderful one it is. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.